This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, February 8th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. It can't be said enough, police are way ahead of courts when it comes to understanding technology that can implicate your rights. The case of cell site simulators, so-called stingrays, is a perfect example. Nate Wessler is deputy director of the ACLU Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Through FOIA and lawsuits, he's in the process of learning more about just how police are using this secretive technology to evade the constraints of constitutional government. When police agencies want to spy on someone and uh, gather information for an investigation, what is the constitutionally approved process that police agencies ought to use in order to do that? So, you know, there are a number of ways technologically that police can try to intercept people's communications or track our locations uh, over time or locate us, uh, going through a request to the phone company, uh, trying to use malware installed on a phone, uh, or using their own device, uh, often called a cell site simulator, uh, that mimics a cell phone tower and tries to locate the phone. Uh, you know, all of those are highly invasive, and we think there are some differences in how the Fourth Amendment applies depending on the type of technology. But at a minimum, there needs to be a search warrant based on probable cause issued by a neutral judge uh, that provides individualized suspicion and court oversight. So when you say individual suspicion, particularized suspicion, you're talking about a, a person who is suspected of having committed a crime. There is some evidence already that police have stumbled upon to to uh, request a warrant. And then they, as narrowly as they can, monitor that person's uh, communications for the purposes of getting to charges. That's exactly right. And that's that's really all spelled out in the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, which requires that when police conduct a search or a seizure of somebody's private spaces, their home, or their private communications, in this case, uh, they have to demonstrate probable cause, not just mere suspicion, but actual some evidence and reason to believe somebody has committed or is committing a crime, uh, present that probable cause to a judge. Um, and then the warrant needs to specifically spell out exactly what can be searched uh, and to constrain the scope of that search, right? So that you can't have uh, police investigating, you know, one narrow crime, searching through all of somebody's stored communications or tracking someone's movements all around town throughout their entire day uh, because the invasiveness of, of that kind of a search, particularly in digital age, is just extraordinary. So uh, you mentioned some technological methods that police could use to try to intercept or uh, get some communications from people that they're that they have suspected of committing crimes. Uh, what is a cell site simulator? I believe they're also called stingrays. That's right. So this is technology that police can use to effectively mimic a cell phone tower, right? Mimic an AT&T or Verizon or Sprint tower uh, and send out a signal to all the phones in an area, uh, forcing those phones to report back and to register themselves uh, and thereby uh, really uh, precisely locate a particular person's phone and effectively get a list of every phone in the area. Uh, so, you know, often police, um, if they know, you know, who their target is, uh, and their cell phone number, they may go get a warrant to serve on a cell phone company, say AT&T, saying, we want you to ping that phone and tell us where it is. Uh, and police do this all the time. Uh, and it is a very powerful tool to locate a phone. But the the precision of that location 
sometimes varies. Sometimes AT&T can really give, you know, a very precise GPS coordinates, but sometimes they say, well, the phone is here, give or take a thousand meters, and we just can't get more precise than that. Uh, and so in those kind of situations, police may want to use the cell site simulator to covertly go drive around a neighborhood where they think a phone is and keep sending out these signals to say, hey, I'm an AT&T tower. Actually, no, it's a box and an antenna in the back of a police car. Uh, all the phones nearby, tell us who you are. And then phones unwittingly report their electronic serial number. And police can very precisely uh, narrow in on a phone by driving in, in a pattern around a neighborhood or a concentric circles. Uh, I've seen cases where police were able to pinpoint a phone in a particular room of a home uh, behind a particular uh, window in a big apartment building uh, and then can surveil somebody over time or can move in to arrest them. Uh, an important and really disturbing feature of this technology uh, that really bears on on how we think about constraining it under the Fourth Amendment and state and federal law uh, is that even when police are trying to locate a particular suspect, they know that person's phone number, they plug it in the machine. The way this machine works is it communicates with and gets information from every phone in the area, uh, all those bystanders' phones within range. And so you have police effectively downloading a list of everybody else in that neighborhood who has a cell phone. Uh, that's invasive enough, but then you start thinking about police using it in your sensitive locations, a house of worship, a protest, a medical clinic, uh, and you really are getting an incredible list of people engaged in uh, really sensitive activities of life. What has New York done with respect to uh, making use of this new technology? So there, there are um, not just New York, but the you know across the country, there are um, a few things that have happened that are um, uh, significant uh, around use and regulation of this technology. Uh, so uh, you know, for years, use of this technology was shrouded in almost total secrecy by law enforcement. Uh, police were uh, hiding the fact that they were using it from uh, magistrate judges, hiding the fact that they were using it from defendants and defense attorneys after charges were brought, hiding it from legislators. Uh, it took years of work by the ACLU and other civil liberties organizations and privacy activists and journalists to get information from uh, from police agencies describing not just that they were using this, but but some of the capabilities of the technology, how they were using it. Uh, since then, in the last few years, um, some states have passed specific legislation uh, requiring not only a warrant, but particular kinds of disclosures to judges and defendants when this technology is used so that there's robust judicial oversight. Uh, Washington State and Illinois have particularly strong laws around that. In other uh, states, um, judges have, have had cases where they have ordered similar uh, protections. Uh, so there have been cases in New York, in uh, Maryland, in Illinois, uh, in Florida, D.C., other places where criminal defendants have said, this violated my Fourth Amendment rights. The police didn't get a warrant and they didn't inform the judge or my defense attorney what was going on. Uh, evidence should be thrown out. And courts, um, judges have often actually gotten very upset about the secrecy uh, and have said, not only is this a search that requires a warrant, but you must, police, you must make much more robust disclosures to judges so we know what's happening and how to regulate it. Well, it, it's it's odd because uh, with this particular piece of technology, you, you know, ma as you as you note, massively invasive uh, to people who, as far as anyone knows, are doing nothing wrong um, and taking that evidence to a judge at a trial or uh, after charges have been issued and suddenly discovering that they don't have a legitimate case because they violated the rights of the accused. And so I, I can imagine there being, if you have enough ju stickler judges to say, 
well, how exactly did you get this evidence? What were you using to gather this evidence that that poli- the ends that police that we have police to execute on uh, might not be met as well as we would hope? That's right. I mean, it's you know, I think there are a few important points there. One is it's really in everybody's interest to to scrupulously follow the requirements of the Fourth Amendment to protect people's privacy rights by going to a judge saying what you're going to do, get that warrant. Uh, because from police's point of view, they really risk their investigations at the tail end if if their evidence ends up getting thrown out because they were really cavalier about how they were tracking people and and um, intruding on people's privacy rights. Uh, and for the rest of us, uh, it really matters because um, without robust judicial oversight and a warrant requirement and other protections, uh, you know, any of us can be subject to tracking and surveillance at any time for any reason or no reason at all. And in the digital space, this is especially uh, poignant because uh, when we are surveilled, it's very different than police kicking in your door uh, without a warrant. Uh, you may never know that you were the subject of any of this surveillance. That's exactly right. I mean, these devices in particular, cell site simulators, they operate surreptitiously by design. There is no nothing you would see on your cell phone if it was connected to uh, a cell site simulator instead of a real cell phone tower, uh, calls might drop if if a call came in right as uh, that cell site simulator was was hijacking your phone's connection. Uh, you might not get a call, but calls drop for all kinds of reasons as you're moving around. Um, but that's really it. There's there's no way to know it, uh, and so um, that means that yeah, we need really robust legal protections. Um, it also means that you know the the times when people find out that this has happened to them. Um, are really almost exclusively when they've been charged with a crime and are entitled under the Constitution to receive certain information from the government about how they were identified and investigated. Uh, And so, uh, you know, really all of us in society end up relying on criminal defendants and criminal defense attorneys to protect all of our privacy rights, all of our Fourth Amendment rights. Those are the cases where most often these issues get litigated and where judges finally have an opportunity to scrutinize what police did and uh, decide whether it complied with the Constitution. What is the ACLU asking for here? So we um, have done a lot of advocacy over the years around this technology, and things have improved significantly, although we still have really serious concerns. Um, you know, uh, some of the secrecy problems that, that were just endemic across the country uh, five or six years ago have gotten better. Um, uh, through our advocacy and advocacy of, of many others, uh, you know, one of the really significant things that we think may have changed, although we're not sure, and we're currently litigating a case under the Freedom of Information Act to find out, is that for years, one of the things that was creating this extraordinary secrecy, uh, the hiding of information from judges and defendants and others, was that when a state or local law enforcement agency wanted to buy a cell site simulator for its own use from a private company that marketed it, before they could make that purchase, they had to go to the FBI and sign a non-disclosure agreement with the FBI promising not to disclose any information about their use of this technology, not even the fact that they had it anywhere in court proceedings, in warrant applications, in disclosure to defendants, anywhere else, uh, which is just incredible. And so you, we then had, you know, we, we, through public records requests to state agencies and local agencies, were able to turn up, you know, investigative notes where police, we were able to figure out had used a cell site simulator, but had scrubbed all mention of it from their investigative notes, right? They would say something like, we identified the location of the suspect, 
we identified the location of the suspect using a confidential source of information, you know, which any defense attorney would think is a confidential informant. And there are certain rules and procedures around, around that. Um, you know, other uh, court applications, right, not for warrants, but for a much easier kind of court order to get where police would say, uh, you know, we, we intend to um, identify the location of the suspect's phone. Uh, and then they'd have all this language about AT&T and T-Mobile and Sprint. And to the judge, it would sound like they were making kind of a traditional request to the phone company. And then the judge would issue the uh, the court order, and then police would go go use their cell site simulator. That we think may have changed. So the FBI, after getting thoroughly embarrassed by by revelation of these non disclosure agreements, said several years ago that they were going to at least cut back on their use of them. Uh, we don't know though whether they have started imposing them again or they kept imposing them in the interim. Uh, so we're suing for information about that, and and that's one piece we need to know. You know. Are, is information about this technology still being hidden from members of our judicial system and from lawmakers and others who should be setting policy? Um, the other really important question is, uh, under the Fourth Amendment, is a warrant even enough? Uh, you know, warrants typically are the tool you use when you have a specific suspect and you want to get information about that suspect. Uh, and, you know, from the founding of this country, from the framing of the Fourth Amendment, one of the major concerns was a reaction to British forces using so-called general warrants, which were a piece of paper that had the heading warrant on it, but they purported to authorize a search of any person's home anywhere for a particular kind of evedence. These were often investigations for seditious libel or seditious conspiracy. Uh, and so there's a question whether you know a search warrant to use a cell site simulator actually is just overbroad because you can't use the device without sweeping in all these innocent people. And that's a question that's not yet answered by judges. Mostly we think warrants are being obtained, uh, but the overbreath of the technology still raises really serious concerns. So I wonder, to the extent that local police agencies are signing non-disclosure agreements with the, the FBI uh, in order to, I guess, protect the business interest of the companies that are uh, marketing this technology, it, it seems to me that it almost demands that police be less than honest with judges about their activities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, those non-disclosure agreements, at least the, the ones that we have seen copies of from several years ago, uh, demand, require police to be less than honest, require police to hide material information about what they were going to do from judges. Um, you know, we also saw uh, several years ago cases where you finally got a defense attorney who was able to pry just enough information out of the prosecutor's office to know that a cell site simulator was used and then brought a motion before the judge saying, um, well, I need, so now I know this was used and I need more information about how it works. Uh, can you issue an order to the prosecution to turn over information about which device they used, how it works, what's its broadcast radius, how precise it is? Uh, and we saw several cases where uh, in the face of that order to disclose more information, prosecutors suddenly offered incredible no jail time plea deals to make cases go away, which, of course, a defendant is going to take, right? Uh, you know, the whole point of this is to uh, vindicate your rights and uh, nobody wants to go to jail. And so suddenly cases were disappearing because prosecutors would rather end the prosecution than have to turn over information that was subject to this FBI non-disclosure agreement. Really stunning. The Supreme Court has its third-party doctrine, which causes a lot of grumbling in the pro-liberty circles about the degree to which you're essentially signing away your freedom just by 
sending information to a third party that you have you have lost some privacy interest in that information. Um, you know, it seems that that this is almost an attack on that. That potentially what you're opening up here is that. Well, yeah, people do still have an interest in this information remaining private, and there's a lot left to to dig through before we ultimately get this issue squarely before the Supreme Court. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's interesting about this technology is that um, the government has absolutely argued that the third party doctrine applies here. And as you said, this is the, a principle that came out of Supreme Court cases from the 1970s that say, uh, when you share information or records with a company you you interact with, say your dial telephone numbers held by the phone company or cancel checks that are sitting at your bank, right? You've lost all your Fourth Amendment rights in those because they're not yours anymore. They're a business record now. Uh, this The U.S. Supreme Court, in a case that the ACLU argued, that I argued in the court um, in 2017, uh, has held that at least as to cell phone location information held by a phone company, the third-party doctrine doesn't apply. It's so sensitive. It's so integral to our modern life that police still need a warrant for it. Um, now, police have have tried to make that third party doctrine argument around cell site simulators too. Uh, part of what's interesting there is that um, it, it's even more ludicrous in this context because there's no third party involved. Actually, they're not going to AT and T or T Mobile or Sprint or Google to try to get records. Their police are using their own device to go surveil somebody, and that's just classic Fourth Amendment territory, right? Whether police pound down your door and rifle through your papers, or whether they aim a sensitive electronic tracking device at your phone, police are just are tracking you. Um, and with these t- devices, they're actually forcing your phone to transmit new information. They're not just listening to your phone talking to the, the Verizon tower. They're actually sending a ping to your phone saying, hey, register yourself with the network. And then your phone says, oh, okay, it's time to register. Here's my serial number. Uh, and so it's communication entirely instigated by police back to the police. And that's just classic time when the Fourth Amendment should apply. And that's a massive distinction, if not in sort of our common understanding of the Fourth Amendment, definitely as a legal distinction. Yeah, as a legal distinction. And, and it, you know, I think it, it also matters in a, um, a kind of visceral way uh, as we understand, you know, what's the purpose of the Fourth Amendment, right? The Supreme Court has said there are kind of two touchstones of the Fourth Amendment. One is to protect our privacy rights, and the other is to protect our property rights against interference uh, by the government. Um, and this technology really, it implicates both. Obviously, privacy, because it's letting our location and movements and activities be tracked. But also, it's interfering with the function of our property, in the words of the Fourth Amendment, our effects, right? Our cell phones. This is our stuff. And you don't expect police to be able to grab your phone and poke around in it and pull your location history off of it. Uh, you also don't expect p- police to send a signal to it that turns your phone in your pocket into a government tracking device. It really is a, a tremendous interference with our things that should be under our control unless a judge gives very specific guidance to the, the contrary. Where does your case stand now? What do you expect to be the resolution? So in this Freedom of Information Act uh, case, we uh, sent a FOIA request to the FBI in January 2021, uh, about a year ago, uh, as we sit here, uh, asking for any non-disclosure agreements that they've made local police sign uh, in the last three years, uh, as well as any other records about conditions that they place on state and local police using this technology. Uh, they sat on that request for a number of months, and then they sent us a, a basically a two-line response that said, uh, we can neither confirm nor deny whether we have any records responsive to your request because uh, to confirm or deny whether we have documents would reveal law enforcement secrets. Uh, 
that was tremendously unsatisfying to us. Also nonsensical because the FBI just a few years before that had acknowledged that it had been imposing non-disclosure agreements on local police for this very technology. Uh, so we filed an appeal letter with the the transparency overseer in, in the Department of Justice, uh, got no substantive response. And then in December, we sued. Um, and uh, it took just about 30 days from our suit for the FBI uh, to realize uh, as soon as they had to file something with the court to update the court on its position, that this neither confirmed nor deny response was clearly untenable. So they've now backed off of that. And they've said, okay, we're going to actually search for records. Uh, they're doing that search right now. They should tell us uh, sometime in March how many documents they have. And then there'll be a process of of hopefully getting those documents from the FBI. So we should know uh, in the next few months, uh, we hope, whether these non-disclosure agreements are still being used. Of course, we expect them to give us less than we're entitled to, uh, and we'll have a fight over redactions and withholdings, and that's a normal part of, of FOIA litigation. But then at, at some point this year, uh, we should know more. As we sit here and record, there are state legislatures in session throughout the United States for uh, state legislatures that care about this issue, about securing the rights under the Fourth Amendment to the residents of their states. What's a big fat target for a change in policy regarding how police do their jobs? Yeah. So, you know, as to this technology, there are a few states that have laws that are really the gold standard uh, about not just getting warrants for cell site simulators, but really explaining exactly what kinds of disclosures have to be made to judges and defense attorneys. Uh, so Illinois and Washington, uh, Utah also has a really good law. Um, you know, this is a, all of these privacy and law enforcement surveillance issues are ones that uh, that don't break down on kind of red state, blue state, or conservative liberal lines, uh, right? We see uh, tremendously deep left-right coalitions in states. We see, you know, states like Washington and states like Utah, both regulating at the the uh, leading edge of policy. Uh, so those are good models to look to for this kind of technology. Um, you know, the, the other place that I think is really important for legislatures to be thinking about are consumer privacy, strong consumer privacy protections, in part because they can end up protecting us against unjustified law enforcement surveillance. Uh, and the place where we see that in most stark relief right now uh, is around uh, this relatively new dynamic where law enforcement agencies have realized that if they don't want to go through the process of getting a warrant, they there are sources they can buy people's cell phone location information from instead of compelling its disclosure from a cell phone company. Uh, right. So the Supreme Court has has uh, said, as I explained, that when law enforcement wants to go to AT&T or Sprint to get someone's historical cell phone location information, they have to get a warrant. No question about that now. Uh, well, it turns out that's not the only place that our location information uh, is being compiled. Uh, right. Apps on our phones have access to the GPS chips on our phones. And lots of these apps have realized that... Um, you know, they, they are so-called free to us, right? You just download the app and start using it, but they're making money somehow. How are they making money? By selling our data. So a lot of these apps are gathering our GPS location information and monetizing it by selling it to these networks of, of uh, data brokers. Um, and the classic buyers for these data broker uh, sets of location data are advertising networks, right? Who want to be able to send geographically targeted ads, also insurers and lots of other kinds of companies that want information about where people are at, at various times. But federal law enforcement agencies and increasingly state law enforcement agencies have realized, oh, if we just pony up some cash, we can get access to this incredible 
stream of people's GPS location data. You know, that is partly possible because we don't have good consumer privacy laws in this country that ensure that people consent before companies extract and sell our location data. Uh, and so, um, you know, state legislatures, uh, I think, would do well to think about that. Um, and then at the federal level, there's currently bipartisan legislation called the Fourth Amendment is Not for Sale Act that would attack this on the law enforcement side by making sure that uh, that cops have to get a warrant whether they want to buy uh, the location data or whether they, they want to just ask for it uh, from a company. Nate Wessler is Deputy Director of the ACLU Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>